0: This episode of Killer Mediums has been brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is my podcast recording station of choice. Not only does it make it easy for me to reach out to guests and to coordinate interviews without a bunch of create account prompts, but it also has a bunch of cool production tools for the back end of recordings, including a filler word removal feature that automatically removes all the ums and ahs that plague my interviews. It saved me so much time on the editing floor. Uh, want to get started? Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code KILLERMEDIUMS with no space. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It is time to share your story. Barn has tied bells to everybody in the morgue. So if they had a ting, they knew somebody down there wasn't quite ready to go. Hey listeners, this is William Sterling, and you're listening to the Killer Mediums Podcast, where we talk about all of your favorite horror tropes and how they manifest across all your favorite mediums of entertainment. Today's topic is small-town horror, and we are joined by guest Todd Kiesling. As a warning, this is the most spoiler-heavy podcast on the face of the earth, so if you want to avoid spoilers for any of today's topics, especially Devil's Creek, Salem's Lot, or A Dark Song, then you should turn back now. But with all of that said, here we go. Let's get spooky. And Todd, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great,
1: William. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing really good. I'm loving season two right now because uh, you are one of like this long regiment of authors that I have looked up to for a long time as the people that like tell amazing stories and do things the right way and just like authors that I really like admire in all ways, shapes, and forms. So the fact that I was able to reach out to you for an episode and you were actually like gracious enough to jump on here with me, like, I'm blown away. This is so cool to me.
1: Oh, of course, man, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, you'll never have a difficult time getting an author to talk about his or her work. <laughs> I'm, I'm
0: learning that yeah. authors and uh, authors and actors have been the two that I've been reaching out to. That I've just like immediately like, yeah, let's do this thing. Um, we like talking about ourselves. It's cool.
1: <laughs> Somebody has to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um and and the book of yours that we are really, really focused on today, Devil's Creek, like, I know we are kind of past its first wave of like doing podcast after podcast after podcast about it. I'm sure you probably got tired of that maybe while it was Bram Stoker Award nominated. <laughs> uh, but maybe revisiting it here like two years later, we can we can spur some new life into this thing.
1: No, I mean, it, it It had, you know, it had a, a good first run. Now we have an opportunity to reintroduce it to new readers. And, you know, I, I will never tire of doing this sort of thing. Because, uh, again, authors love talking about their work. <laughs> so before we dive too much
0: into your work, um, let's just set the stage with who you are. Uh, so for anybody that's listening to the podcast that maybe isn't familiar with you, uh, what is the what is the elevator pitch for who is Todd Kiesling? What is your niche in the horror community?
1: Uh, so I don't know if I've really found my niche per se, but I'm so I'm a horror writer. Obviously, I'm also a uh, you know an artist, a uh, graphic designer. Um, I've been writing for most of my life, professionally for the last twenty plus years, and. My horror is kind of a weird uh, amalgamation of cosmic horror, traditional horror, and some experimental horror a little bit uh you know you're not gonna find you know crazy axe murderers or you know uh you know vampires or whatnot in my stuff. you're gonna find things with a bit more philosophical substance i think um hence you know devil's creek for example right (laughs) yeah um so that that's me i mean i write a little bit of everything but those are probably my main focal points when it comes to you know my storytelling yeah um and you are
0: i'm not sure if i've got this right you are uh an escaped kentucky resident you are a kentucky resident
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> former Kentucky resident escaped is also uh, you know a good way to describe it an, an expat uh, Kentucky resident um, yeah I've I've called Pennsylvania my home for almost as long as I've lived in as I lived in Kentucky so it's kind of hard to say that I'm a Kentuckian at this point but you know I still family and everything and family lived there and you know several friends so you know I still have ties to the state. Yeah, and anybody that watches
0: you and Laurel Hightower on uh, Twitter, uh, I've seen you, the two of you go back and forth a couple of times as as she or you pass exits to various towns. Like, yeah, hey, like uh,
1: that place. Anytime she drives through my hometown, to you know, on her way to somewhere else, she always posts a photo of giving the finger to the you know out the window, which is appropriate. <laughs>
0: And that, that kind of builds us up to the, the topic of the day with small town horror. So um, I lived in Kentucky for a year myself. We didn't spend the longest time there. But even while I was there, you certainly got this sense of isolation. Like there are a couple of big cities around there. But for the most part, that whole state and just the southeast in general even uh, is very kind of isolation centric. Um, you, you'll get these little pockets of nearly civilization and then there's a hundred miles to the next one.
1: Yeah. That, I think that was one of the biggest things that surprised me when I moved to Pennsylvania is like, you know, around here, you'll drive through five different towns and not even know it. Yeah. Like they're just so tight, you know, tight together. And in Kentucky you'll drive for 20 miles and not be in a town specifically. You'll just be in the fucking countryside and you're never, you're never that far away from nowhere in that state yeah. Uh, where you have almost no cell phone reception and, you know, there's creepy house like in the distance on a farm or something. But, you know, if you break down, you're, you're basically fucked.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. The 90% burned down barns are like yes. a staple of our corner of the world. Yeah. Um, But okay, so with these types of settings, uh, we had a whole episode in season one where Alfred Alley and I talked about cabins in the woods and how just that setting by itself has managed to generate this whole um, this whole trend of horror setting, setting a movie in that particular setting. And you kind of know the beat points that are going to come with it. You kind of know the tone that cabin in the woods movies are going to take small town horrors sort of kind of play off the same energy they're a setting but even just with that setting you know a couple of things that are going to come along with it you know that there's going to be that sense of isolation you you know that you're going to have uh within that small town people that are very familiar with each other uh but that are also keeping some secrets from each other like it's it's it is a blueprint for a great horror story so from your perspective, uh, as somebody who's kind of played around in this sandbox, uh, what are the things you look for uh, to, to I guess, capitalize on in a small-town horror story? What are your key elements that come into play here?
1: I think you covered a lot of them. Um, you know, for, for me, a good small-town horror story is going to have, you know, a good... You know, you're going to have a central cast of characters, but it's not just the central cast that really builds the small town atmosphere you know uh you get a lot of these peripheral characters that i think are necessary in order to build up the town as a character itself when i was you know when we were shopping the novel originally you know a few years ago you know, that was the biggest pushback i got from you know prospective editors was they wanted me to cut out all of that stuff that made it a small town horror novel, uh, to me anyway. And I, you know, I, I refused like I cut as much as I was willing to cut without compromising the vision. But back to the point, uh, you know, you got this, a large cast of characters, you've got your, your small central focus, but they interact with these other people and that you need that in order to give the story this sense of it being a living, breathing place that is functioning apart from the narrative that you're following. You know, like you need, you need that detail. That's what fills it out. That's what gives it, you know, a body and breath and, you know, everything so that it's as much a character doing its own thing as your protagonist or your antagonist. Right. Um, so I, I look for that, uh, you know, you, and of course you've got the, that in itself, I think is probably the, the biggest characteristic, um, because as a writer that allows you to have so many different perspectives of the same setting. And there's a lot you can play around with that. Um, you know, how is this, how this character reacts to a, you know, an event that happens in town is not how this other character is going to react. Even if they're not the main character, they're going to have an opinion on it. And you can, through them, provide eyes into the town's history, into its, you know, little peculiarities, the, you know, the gossip train, the, uh, the social structure, uh, of, you know, the Folks who've lived there a long time, their families have multiple generations there versus the people who haven't lived there very long. Um, There's all these different mechanics that you can utilize to bring that to life. And so when it comes to small town horror, I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at what kind of characters fill out its space because they in turn act as the voice of the town itself.
0: I like that. And a big, a big thing that I think you mentioned that might kind of get lost on people that haven't actually lived in a small town before, just that gossip train. Oh, yeah. Um,
1: it mean, is if, For the city folks who might be listening, you know, who you know, if you've never lived in a small rural town, uh, case in point, my high school graduating class was maybe 105 people. That's tiny. Um, you know, I know some towns that have had graduating classes of 30 or 40, Jeez, okay. uh, you know, I mean, we're talking like really small insular communities out there and it literally is generations and generations of families who've been there since probably since the beginning. I mean, there are still, there's still families in, you know, my hometown of Corbin, Kentucky that, you know, they were the families that helped found the town back in the 1800s uh so you've got these generations of folks who all grow up knowing each other and like the kids that i graduated with i would say 80 percent of them i knew when i started school in kindergarten <laughs> yeah and they're
0: i guess that can be a good thing and a bad thing i guess because on the one hand you've got this sense of ownership over where you live and the community and you you really feel you really feel like you can be a part of that and you can help mold and shape that but on the other on the other side of things there is no escaping anything in a community of that size if anything goes slightly wrong everybody Everybody in the community is going to hear about it, your fuck up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, everybody's going to know everybody else's dirty laundry. Uh-huh. Um, that's a big thing, I think. With the gossip train, is there is no sense of privacy in towns of that size. Everybody thinks that everything else is their business, so you get these very, these very nosy neighbors. <laughs> I and
1: mean, um, it's not even—it's not even like they're actively trying to be nosy. It's just. It's always there, you know, whether they, you know, they're actively seeking it out or not, they're going to hear things that somebody else is talking about. Um, and you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, like if you get branded as a, you know, an outcast, a geek or a nerd or whatever early on, that is your place in, in life in that town for as long as you live there. Um, you know, I've been I was branded the weirdo at a very young age. I always have been um thank you autism. <laughs> and but you know, I I was always kind of that kid who was left out, who was always last picked on the, you know, basketball team because nobody wanted to play with me. And granted over time I found my own little, you know, group of outcast friends. So I still had that, that social, social aspect, but you know, there are, <laughs> well, here's a good example. Um, so, uh, there's a character I wrote about in devil's Creek. Uh, it, you know, it's the the young boy, Riley's, uh, arch nemesis, um, and you know, Ronnie cord okay. and, You know, I might have the names mixed up. Forgive me. It's been a little while since I've read the manuscript (laughs) and had to be in that headspace. But basically, that's based on a real bully of mine who. 15 years after the last time we saw each other, which was high school graduation, left a comment on my website. My (laughs) tell me that nobody cares. (laughs) (laughs) And I talked about this on on the ink on ink heist a long time ago, (laughs) and uh, they got a big kick out of it. So but I, I just use that as an example, because to this guy who has not seen or heard from me in, you know, over a decade. Still in his mind, I am this, you know, this worthless, you know, piece of trash and wants to leave the comment just to remind me of that. And yeah, so basically he, he's the basis for that character in the book. Um, that's
0: so crazy that there's not enough going on in that guy's life that he feels the I, need to track. I mean,
1: down. it's pretty amazing that I live rent free in his head. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 amazing, but that's just an, uh, you know, that's an extreme example of, you know, of being branded as something early on in a small community like that and having it follow you through the rest of your life. You know, it, it, the only way you really escape it is to leave that place and to surround yourself with, you know, basically give yourself a fresh start because you're never going to get a fresh start. Like Stephen King even mentioned, you know, talked about that in uh, on writing when he was talking about one of the, uh, the character, the people he knew in school, uh, who was the basis for Carrie, Carrie white. And he talked about how, like, you know, they would start out the school year wearing the same, same outfit because the parents couldn't afford anything better. They couldn't afford more than one nice outfit. So by the end of the semester and during the holidays, their outfit would just conc- increasingly get worse and more ragged because they're wearing it every day. So they go to the ho- you know, holidays come Christmas break. The kids come back then following semester wearing new clothes But because they've been picked and ragged on for months prior, they're still pushed back down into their place by the higher, you know, social, you know, social beings in that little, you know, that small pond, we'll say. And it's sadly, it's human nature. It's the same across the board for any small town. You're going to have the haves and the have nots. You're going to have the, you know, the lords and the, the serfs right. and, you know, to get out of to, to get out of that kind of expectation that's been placed upon you, you have to remove yourself from it entirely.
0: But then that kind of leads to the next kind of running theme in small town horror, I think that I've picked up on is just. Every time we read a book about small town horror, there's a big point of emphasis on how hard it is to escape.
1: It is true. Um,
0: These towns have this kind of gravitational pull about them that's constantly trying to suck you back in. Um, This is all you've ever known. This is all you're ever going to know. We see a lot of that uh, kind of playing out in Devil's Creek, too. The main character whose name is dodging me right now. Jack. Jack uh jack has escaped he has become a successful artist and after all of these years he's being brought back to this town and i think i remember reading parts where he he knows this is a mistake like he should not be coming back here Mm -hmm. um but before i dive too deep into your book um (laughs) let me give you the platform here would you like to uh introduce our readers to the book If, if they haven't read the book and are listening to this podcast for some reason um what is the, what is the quick sell? And then we'll give them a second to go read the book and then hopefully they'll come back to us.
1: Sure. Yeah. It's going <laughs> to take them a long second. Uh, <laughs> so Devil's Creek is a, you know, small town cosmic horror story. Uh, it is about the survivors of a death cult that had, uh, 30 years prior. um, the minister of this death cult, the leader, uh, he and his followers all committed suicide during this, uh, this final rite that they were performing. And um, the children's grandparents saved them uh, from, that, th- from being used as sacrifices in that rite. So 30 years later, uh, the last grandparent passes away. And the main character, Jack, returns to this small town in which he grew up, the small Kentucky town, and comes back to basically settle his grandmother's estate. And as he's there, something begins to happen. Uh, The evil uh, entity that was being worshipped as a god isn't actually dead. And in, you know, usual small town horror fashion, something begins to creep back in. And so the story follows the lives of the survivors. Uh, they're called the Stafford six because they were miners at the time. That's how the media referred to them. Not that, not that unlike the West Memphis three who were, that was actually that whole naming convention was actually inspiration for this. Um so you get to find out what happened to the Stafford 6 after they grew up, but then now they have to deal with potential demons that didn't die that have followed them all through their childhood into, you know, adulthood. Uh so that's the my long-winded and very rambly synopsis. Um basically the, the two sentence elevator pitch Oh God, I don't even have it up in front of me, but, uh, I've told, I, I just in a, like a one sentence thing, I've told people that it's, uh, it's about how religion destroys a town in the span of like a few days.
0: We haven't even touched religion yet. Yeah. Oh my goodness, we've been talking about small town horror for the last 20 minutes and we totally just like missed that whole side tangent, but yes, the whole I don't know what to call it. A tagline for the book is give me that old time religion. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That is a beautifully horrific calling card. Once Uh you know kind of where the book is going and all the influence at influences at play there. Thank you. But so like I said, going to pause for just a second. If you have not read devil's Creek, the entire rest of this podcast episode is going to be totally lost on you. And it is going to like, this is not the place for you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe go get the book. Um, This might be a great time to kind of put the plug in for the new version of the book, Um, but go get the new version of the book, read through it and uh, come back to us when you're ready. But Todd, um, this book was originally published in 2020 and we'll come back to my mental significance of that in just a moment. But it was originally published in 2020. It's getting new life this year, next year, very uh, soon now.
1: January 10th.
0: Okay, January 10th. Um, can you kind of talk us through what version two of this book is adding in? Because I know on Twitter, I've seen you posting a lot of cool new features to it.
1: Uh, yeah. So I mentioned uh, a little while ago that I'm also a graphic designer. And uh, it was something I always dabbled in when I was a you know, younger, but, uh, thanks to the pandemic and one shitty employer, I've now actually able to call myself a full-time graphic designer. It's what I do for a living now and pays my bills. And I focus on book design. So when cemetery dance, uh, picked up the reprint rights devil's Creek after the former publisher closed its doors, um, you know, I, I was basically asked if i would mind designing the interior. So i'm like, all right, so we're going to do this the way I, I would have done it, you know, a few years ago if i hadn't had some constraints, primarily being time and page count. Okay. <laughs> so uh the the book, the story is the same, nothing has changed there. Uh i did have some questions at an event a few weeks ago um just to you know, settle that there is no new content in the book in terms of the story. Uh, It has a new acknowledgments and it has a new introduction that was written by uh, Ronald Malfi, author of Come With Me and Black Mouth and a whole bunch of other, you know, amazing novels that you should all be reading. Uh, So very kind of him to uh, write that introduction. So it has that, but I wanted to because I knew I wouldn't have time to revise and re-revise the novel to put a lot of the cut content back in, and that's the primary reason is I didn't have time. I didn't have a time a timetable to work make that work. Uh, I decided to do something with the presentation of the book instead. So it's got the original cover. Uh, artwork done by Greg Chapman uh, with design by myself. And I made it so that there is this growing corruption that starts to seep into the pages as the story progresses. So how that's represented visually uh, to match the story is the pages start out fairly clean and then, with each part, there are five parts in the book, each part, the, st- the pages get a little dirtier. So by the end, it's very clear that there is some kind of infectious thing happening here. And the cover reflects that. It's kind of like spilling over into the cover. And uh, I also created a map of the town uh, that appears in the book as well. So I was able to do a lot of uh, really cool things design wise that I didn't have time or inclination to do two years ago. So I just flipped open my own
0: copy of the book because I, for some reason, I had this misconception that there was already a map of the town in the first one, but there's no map.
1: I no, I did not have it so well. <laughs> I started to make a map a few years ago, and I I uh, started a new job so i didn't have time to really make that happen and i also wasn't really confident in my my drawing skills enough to make it look good so um i cheated this time around and just did everything in photoshop nice. rather than try to do traditional way but yeah that's you know that's kind of what readers have to look forward to it, it is aside from the new introduction there's no like written you know, content that's new to the book. Uh, it's primarily the design of it. And there was a the misconception came from me announcing that, you know, what the page count was, which I think is like 520 now. It was originally like right around 400 pages. And the reason it's got a bigger page count now is because I wasn't told to restrict it to a certain number of pages to keep the cost down. So, because of that, I was able to let the. Basically, let the sentences breathe on the page and not have them so squished together. And actually, people complain about that the original edition, it was harder to read because the text was smaller. And so now it's not like that at all. Cool. So, cosmetically,
0: like the. Shiny now, and yeah, shiny is the wrong word, but in a good way. (laughs) I approach
1: whenever I do book design, I approach it in terms of you know, context of the story within the pages. I want it to be uh, books should be just these objects that you know are concise and cohesive from cover to cover. You know, and there's nothing wrong with just a traditional, well-laid out book that, you know, any kind of book that you get out of New York. But one, you know, you'll occasionally see that coming out of New York, the really special design, usually for like a big name author or something. But in the indie space, you don't see that. I wanted to offer that and just make prettier books, you know, so I could see prettier books out there in the world. And if I can help contribute to that, then great.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know the the first book that's springing to mind as we're talking about this, Paul Tremblay's Paul Bearer, Paul mm-hmm. Bearer's Club that just came out has that really cool Mercy's annotations in the side in red um, little, I, not a gimmick because that makes it sound too throwaway, but like it, cool little twist on the traditional book style.
1: Yeah, like that uh, or the... There. You know, that double, the dual color printing that they did with that with, you know, to get the black text and then the red text. And they did the same thing like 20 years ago with uh, House of Leaves by Mark Danielewski. Yes. Every instance of the word house was in blue text. Yes. And, you know, all that sort of crazy stuff. Like, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. Uh, But, you know, I try to take it a step further and put the artwork itself on the page to some degree and kind of frame the pages and have, you know, if there's a progression in the story and some element then I want to represent that visually. And, you know, I try to approach every book as an art project essentially. So yeah. it also seemed like a good idea to do that for devil's Creek. So
0: Okay, so then diving into the content of the story then. So here, spoiler warning number three, if you haven't read this book yet and you're still listening, then this is your fault now. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we have this horrifying small town story surrounding Jacob Masters and his death cult, uh, as you called them. The first thing, or I, maybe not the first thing, but the biggest thing that stands out to me about this book, having read it two years Two years back now. The thing that really sits with me is that villain that you created of Jacob Masters. He seems to take everything that we think of with a small town setting and really uses it to his advantage. Um, And and, uh, all of the characteristics of a small town seem to empower him. The, the religious aspect of things, the isolation of things, the, the gossip mill, everybody being very in each other's business. Um, it is all leveraged in a way that makes this truly horrific beast before we even get into the supernatural elements of it, because there's that whole spiritual, supernatural side of things too. But even just at his core, Jacob Masters is really great at Preying on these small town insecurities, so I wanted to kind of ask you: Where did Jacob Masters come from? Was there any particular inspiration for him? Was this just kind of a beast that grew as the story developed for you? What what was what was the birth of Jacob?
1: <laughs> so I had uh, three figures in mind when I started manifesting Jacob on the page. Uh, the first was um, Reverend Kane from Poltergeist Two. Creepy, like that guy has always haunted me. The second being the character Nix from Lord of Illusion, okay. Clyde Barker's, uh, Clyde Barker's film, The Lord of Illusions. Uh, I forget the actor's name, but he was like on Seinfeld, and you know, like it's just a really, it's a great character actor. He passed away a few years ago. He plays the Nick's, the Puritan. In the movie.
0: Daniel and Von Bargen.
1: That's it. <laughs> Him, his manner of speech, uh, you know, lots of lots to do with suffering and talking about, you know, the grave and this there's this cosmic element to everything that he says. And I wanted to expand on that with Jacob Masters. The third figure and this I know this might surprise some folks, but others not at all. Uh, the televangelist, Joel Osteen.
0: Yes. Oh my uh, gosh. I get that. <laughs> who is just a,
1: a snake, of a human being. Um, him especially. And of course, you know, there, when it came to the sort of things that Jacob would say, uh, Jim Jones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't recommend watching a documentary on Jim Jones the first thing on a Saturday morning, because it will ruin the rest of your weekend because that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that that's something that uh, some of the critics of the book complained about is just the, the repetition of everything. And, you know, that was intentional. Um, cult leaders and to a degree, you know, preachers, especially the more charismatic ones, they, use repetitious language and it's kind of a a form of brainwashing essentially you know it's brainwashing of the parishioners you get them to repeat it you say it so long it becomes the truth you know I, i i use the language repetition to as a form of indoctrination not just for the characters but i wanted to get into the reader's head as well and it's actually been funny to see some of the more critical responses to the book because they're all just like, you know I can't stand here and give me that old time religion over and over again. It just got in my head, and I can't stop thinking about it, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> argument is invalid <laughs> <laughs> that uh, is- but, so that's kind of like i wanted I wanted Jacob to be this very calm friendly outwardly friendly figure who is also has this menace about him and knows he knows you all too well because he is a man and he has been in tune with a dark cosmic God that lives in the earth. And so he has a window into how everyone ticks, like what's their driver. And, um, you know, there's a, and to that degree, I mean, there's a lot of sex in the book. And it's not cause I was trying to be kinky or subversive. It's because we're, when we get down to our primal base selves, it's all about reproduction. And so, you know, mankind is a very horny beast. <laughs> and so Jacob kind of digs into that primal nature. He speaks of primal nature and promises you, you know, uh, you can have these things that you want, but you have to suffer for it. And I promise it'll be worth it.
0: It, it reads like a much more mature, needful things in a, in a strange sort of a way. You've got this devil figure promising you everything, like everything, your deepest, darkest heart desires. And, uh, you know, all you have to do is sacrifice these six kids. Don't worry about it. Um,
1: And uh And I tried to flip the script a little bit toward the end with the his motivation, why he's doing what he's doing, what has driven him to this point, and it's because he's seen how horrible mankind can be to its fellow man. Uh, And you know, to that, you know, for readers who have read the book, the flashback that occurs you know, toward the end with him when he's walking through town and all the chaos is happening and everything. And he's basically reliving these memories of the souls that were there in the same spot at a different time. And come to find out the whole reason his family was cast out of the town and the church got started where it was and, you know, events kind of led from there is because his father, who was also a minister, speaks out against the hypocrites in town for rounding up all the black folks in the community and putting them on a train and shipping them out, you know, south. Uh he calls them out for being at Sunday mor you know at Sunday bright and early the following morning after they've done this, you know, atrocious act. And collectively, they cast him out, him and you know his family out, and Jacob blames them for that, rightfully so. Right. Uh, so that's kind of where the seed is planted. And while we're on the topic, I mean that actually happened in my hometown. Uh, you know, I, I've I've spoken about it in the past, uh, but for those who aren't familiar, uh, I grew up in Corbin, Kentucky, which is. Very much Stafford, Kentucky, in the book, aside from a few geographic uh, details it's pretty much the same um, in nineteen nineteen that very same thing happened. Uh, how it started is up for debate because it was a very, very long time ago, and no one's really left to talk about it um, there's like I grew up knowing about it but no one ever talked about it. Like it was kind of this thing that was spoken in hushed whispers. And you always had this attitude of, well, we, we won't talk about this now. You know, that was a long time ago. And but the thing is, is it caused a stigma around the town that it is yet to face and grow out of. Uh, Cause for a very long time, Corbin, Kentucky was a sundown town. And the, the scene with, you know, the memory of Jack with his grandmother, Imogene, and they're driving down Main Street and they see a KKK rally at the town hall. That's a real memory I have. I have seen that. Uh, and it's just something that the town never owned up to and has tried to bury. And I'm not okay with that. Yeah the town as Stephanie Green in the book says it's time it's time Corbin faces its reflection. So that was something I resisted at first in the novel but it kept wanting to come out and I realized I can't talk about Corbin without talking about this. Yeah. Like it's very much at the heart of what Corbin is.
0: <laughs> so Oh my gosh, I've got so many spinoff questions here now. That's um, great spinoff comments and spin off like, the, uh, we just blew this conversation open. Okay. Um, I guess first thing I'll lead with is if the if the whole topic today is small town horror, then especially in the south, this is another one of those staples of small towns in the south is so many small towns have these sorts of stories. Um, and these sorts of kind of clan connections still, and just everything else. Like I live, I live 45 minutes Northeast of Atlanta right now, uh, right next to a place called Lake Lanier. Um, and I went on, there's another podcast that everybody should listen to called the Ghoulish Gallery podcast. Uh, Tasha is going through and doing interviews about, uh, haunted locations in each of the 50 States and even some other countries now. So I got to talk to her the other day about Lake Lanier down here, um, widely acknowledged as the most haunted lake in the southeast, if not in America in general. Um, it's so haunted because they went through to create the lake and they just straight up flooded this town called Oscarville uh, to create the lake. They, they needed a man-made lake, so they just flooded the town. And there's all these houses still down there at the bottom of the lake that nice. a scuba diver could go down and like full on Josh Malerman in a house at the bottom of the lake. <laughs> um, but that's the part that everyone talks about. The part that people don't talk about is Oscarville was the black community kind of adjacent to Gainesville. Oh, Gainesville wow. is still standing um oscarville had a little bit of a blow up with um some of the oscarville residents and them quote unquote harassing a white woman like super emmett till and that sort of Mm -hmm. vein so they lynched the people from oscarville and then something bad happened in gainesville so they went down and they decided that they were going to flood this entire lake and it's just there's so many stories like that in the South that people just don't want to face anymore. And it's horrifying. Yeah,
1: yeah, it really is. It's, it's horrifying. It's just disgusting. Um, you know, and it, like, I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on past podcasts, but I mean, the first time I ever... Met or spoke or made friends with a black person was in college after I moved away from that town. You know, I went to school in Lexington, uh, which is the central part of the state. It's where Laurel Hightower lives. Hi, Laurel. Love you. Um, And, you know, it took me going to California for a few weeks uh, during when I was in, you know, the summer between semesters. And, Talking to people and realizing that people in Northern California, Sonoma area know about my little hometown. <laughs> they know the story. They know what happened. And I just I felt I felt dirty just because I came from there. You know, yeah. I felt like I, you know, what one, I, I'm, I need to get the fuck out of there Two, you know, how can I, what can I do? You know, what can I do to bring this injustice to light and also just do my part to force this town to face what it did. And I say it as an entity, not as like one person or, you know, one family, it just, the town is this thing it's this living breathing thing and you could probably make a case for t- small towns being cosmic horrors in and of themselves if you wanted to i'm not going to write that you're welcome to
0: oh i i i do want to that is great even just as a like mind worm
1: <laughs> oh that's that's a freebie <laughs> uh but you know it, it's it's almost like they pulled up, you know, pulling up a stone and seeing all the dirty things that crawl on the underside. Mm -hmm. And it's like Corbin's got lifted up a little bit and we all saw a glimpse of what crawls under there. But then the rock was put back into place and all the nasty, shitty things that live and live there in the cracks and in the dark, they went back into hiding. And you know, I mean, we could probably take this in a far political, you know, discussion if we wanted to, but let's try not to just because that, sure. that's a whole quagmire. Um. So with Devil's Creek, I wanted to put something out there that would pull the stone back, flip it over uh, in my own way. Um, I can't say I... I I can't say that what happens in the book is exactly what happened. Uh, It is a fictionalized version of that, but the essence of the event, the event itself of people being loaded onto trains and shipped out of town and not being welcome back that happened. I mean, there's news articles you can look up, um, you know, to corroborate that there was a documentary film made about it in the late eighties called trouble behind um, wasn't until I went to college and actually had to find it on Kazaa, which I'm dating myself now. If anybody knows what Kazaa was, uh, to actually be able to get a chance to watch it because you couldn't find a copy in town. And right for reason it makes them look incredibly, incredibly bad. And right that rock put down right. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> um. So.
0: Yeah. The, there's a lot here with like being able to breathe these stories out into the world, even if we're taking a little bit of artistic liberty with them, like just being able to expose readers to that reality and that even that mindset and that situation, like that's so huge. And then uh, another thing I wanted to talk about with Devil's Creek, maybe the last thing before we start adding in the other two, sure. the other two works here is, um, something that I loved about the work was the third act, you actually went there. <laughs> and I, I know after talking to you now, maybe more of why we went there, um, but it feels like in a lot of these potentially apocalyptic stories, uh, in, in all of these like big, wide-scale cosmic horror uh, works that I've read at least, a lot of times what we'll do is we will follow the protagonists all the way up to this cataclysmic event and then the heroes will save the day right before the doors get blown open. Um, and, and it always kind of left me as a reader, me as a viewer, a, a little bit frustrated because I'm like, I want to see what I want to see all the bad stuff. <laughs> I, I want to see just how bad this could have gotten. Devil's Creek, we got to that point where usually authors and creators kind of tug back on the reins. And instead of tugging back on the reins, you lit everything on fire. Yes. <laughs> um,
1: uh, that was the plan all along. <laughs> <laughs> um I when I pitched the book to my agent, I told her, I, I want this to be balls to the wall hoarder. I'm not going to hold back. Yeah. I'm, you know, gonna it's gonna be nasty. It's gonna be gross. It's you know, it's gonna go places that are uncomfortable. And it's because I think good horror does that. Good horror pushes buttons. It makes you think about things. It makes you examine yourself and you know, a person's capabilities. And you know, I I knew early on that the town was wasn't going to survive. Like the town had to go uh, because it's the only justifiable outcome after building up the town as this awful thing, like it can't survive. Um, and what better way for that to happen than at the hand of its own, you know, its own citizens. And at which point they, you know, basically sacrifice themselves as well. And what's funny is that again, a lot of critical feedback to the book, people complain that it had a happy ending. I'm like happy for who? (laughs) You everyone's know, like dead and thousands of people die. <laughs> like 7, people die like 7,000 people die. They, they kill themselves. Um, you know, uh, which it, it's all subjective of course to the reader, but I always thought that was amusing, but yeah, third act. Um, I just hit the gas and, yeah. you know, like, all right, cause I I'm with you. It doesn't seem very realistic when you know there's the stakes are this high and then by some teeny tiny chance (laughs) you know nothing comes to pass a crisis averted but that's not how the world works and that's certainly not how cosmic horror works yeah so you know I, i i knew going in that you know, I had to bring it when it came to the actual climax of the story. And, you know, in the sounds of it, it sounded. you know, I think I did, but, yes. you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> my vote says yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, okay. So then let's kind of take this whole conversation and let's, let's pivot into a little bit more of the mystical elements of it. I guess that's the right word for right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the movies that we watched uh to build up to this episode was a dark song um first comment about a dark song i had never heard of this before like not even i heard about it and just like wasn't interested never got around to it like i had never heard this title i had never seen anything about this publicized like What is this movie? How did it get on your radar initially? Do you remember that?
1: Um, I think it was on Netflix. Okay. And, you know, I had heard some rumblings online of people talking about it, and I read the synopsis and like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And typically when I put movies on like that, I'm half paying attention because I'm also on my phone or doing something else. And this film had me from the start. Like I, I didn't do anything else. It had my full attention. Uh, I don't know if you want to add to that or, or before we go into the more weird elements of it or, or what? Um,
0: sure. So my viewing experience was very similar. Um, there have been a lot of these movies for the podcast that kind of like you're saying, I'll kind of turn on and then I'll do dishes while I'm watching, um, them or anything else like that. This one is, It is a slow burn, but it is such a well shot. It is such a well acted and it is such a well paced slow burn that it draws you in anyhow. Um, There is no there is no guessing what's going to happen next at any point in this, even as it's building slowly towards its climax. Um, The performances turned in are just so. Extreme, mm-hmm. I guess, um, that it just keeps you hooked. I i enjoyed it a lot.
1: Um, I, I've it was one of those movies where after it was done, I started it over, yeah. Right <laughs> like, okay, I, I gotta digest this, but I need to see this again right now. Uh, The Empty Man being another one that you know, I had that uh, more similar, you know, uh, recent uh experience, but um. You know it for me, you know it was the atmosphere of this woman's grief mm-hmm. that really struck me, and you know, and I'm a sucker for a good, slow burner of a movie. Um, so you know, you've got she's grieving over her her dead child, and like any grieving mother, she turns to the dark arts <laughs> to, you know, hopefully. Uh, you know, see her child again, and she enlists the expertise of an occultist. And one of the things that I really loved about the, the the movie and respect about it specifically is it is more realistic. It's more realistic showing of an occult ritual. And you know, for folks who haven't seen it. The whole movie is basically about a, what is it? What did they say? Like a month, a month or several months long. They played
0: around with the time a lot. Um, Time kind of lost its meaning and they weren't really sure anymore. But I think, yeah, I think the target was like a month ish.
1: Yeah. So like they're performing a ritual to summon what, you know, what appears to be this woman's guardian angel. To ask for, you know, to basically ask for a wish. And, you know, there's all these different elements. Like they go through this occultist basically training her and different steps of it. You know, it, it's occult magic isn't as simple as just lighting a few candles and saying abracadabra, you know? Right. <laughs> it's, there's actually like a, a lengthy process involved and, the toll it's going to take on your body. You can only, you know, eat certain things or you have to fast for a certain period of time. That's, you know, for a dangerous length of, you know, length of time, you essentially have to get your body and mind in the right, you know, the right place. And, uh, weird shit starts to happen in the house. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I mean, That so, at the end of this movie, I went through and I I was one of those people that had to look up um, explanations online. Like what, what, what the hell was that last 40 minutes of the movie or 30 minutes of the movie? Um, apparently, the whole ritual follows. And this is coming from Reddit. So uh, listeners, if I am off on some of the details here, maybe don't blame me. Um, but also blame me cause I'm looking at Reddit as a credible source, but okay. Reddit is claiming that this is, uh, paralleling Alistair Crowley's, uh, ritual from a long time ago, uh, with becoming part of the order of the golden Dawn, um, so they they're taking this uh, supposedly real ritual. They they're kind of following the blueprint for it, and like you're saying, it is a lot more involved and a lot more grueling than just light the candles, touch a Ouija board.
1: Woo-hoo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They actually, you know, put the time into researching, you know, this very real thing that people believe. I won't say that the. I mean the. The ritual is, you know, a variance of it is real. People believe this. I'm not saying that it will actually conjure a, your guardian angel or whatever. So yeah. don't get any ideas, kids. <laughs> um, but just the, the notion of having to put yourself through this. I mean, it's no different than, you know, like a monk going through months of a restricted diet and not speaking and, you know, trying to reach a, a higher sense of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can definitely see the, you know, the similarities in the rituals that Crowley performed. Uh, so, yeah, I can, I can see that, that, that would have been a, uh, an inspiration for it for sure. Yeah. Uh, but then there's a point where it goes from being very clinical and how it portrays this, these steps into a ritual and then the horror starts to kick in. Yeah. And you start seeing the effects of this ritual as it's slowly happening. And, uh, the one, the one, I mean, there are several moments that stick out in my mind, but the, the one I'll bring up and then I'll, you know, pass the baton to you <laughs> is uh, where her dead child is talking to her through the bedroom door and she's basically having a conversation with her dead kid and there's you know a point where i forget exactly what they're what she's talking to him about and then he, the, the kid basically says you know something like what does it matter i'm just some dumb cunt using your child's voice to scare you mm-hmm. and you just like boom <laughs> like oh my yeah. god
0: <laughs> right because the the whole movie you are just like the only thing you have to hang on to in that whole movie is this hope that maybe all of these terrible things this woman is going through will actually give her this one more moment of talking to her son um and she she gets that moment with like 30 minutes left in the movie but it's through a door and the the guy who's leading her through the ritual is at the end of the hall telling her that's not really him this isn't really happening and then it happens again after that guy's dead and it's like just every time that happens, the demon or the whatever it is that's preying on her, like it, it, it hits the angle in exactly the right way that you, as the listener, you as the viewer are thinking, maybe this is the real one. And then it will say something like that. I'm just some yeah. kind using your son's voice. are like, damn it. <laughs> the,
1: the scene, the scene where, uh, She's in the room. It's dark. And she turns around and sees a shadow sitting mm-hmm. on a chair, smoking a cigarette. And the way they shot it, it was kind of reminiscent of the Nighthouse in a way. It was like a negative yes. kind of thing. And as she moves closer, she sees that there's nothing sitting on the chair, but the cigarette is still there and it's lit. And like, she wasn't smoking it. <laughs> <You> I <Right. know, laughs> was smoking that fucking cigarette. And it was just so, so well done. And, you know, uh, all of it is the build up to that to that payoff. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people say that it falls apart in that final act. I don't think it does. Um, I don't think it does either. I will
0: say, though, that so a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here with the movie sounds very silly at face value. Like if Mm -hmm. you're just sitting here listening to the two of us talking about a woman talking to her potentially dead son through a door like that, that doesn't sound like it would work super well, Mm -hmm. but it's so well executed in the movie that it works. I think that very final scene where again, spoilers she's talking to her guardian angel and the guardian angel sort of has the face of her son and she chooses to go for forgiveness instead of vengeance. It has kind of the same goofy on its face value characteristic. I just didn't think it was executed quite as well as everything else. The- no,
1: I think the budget restraints, you know, a lot of people complain about how the angel looks right. And you know, it there could have, I mean, uh, obviously, I, I, I'm not in tune with the filmmakers, but you know, I would like to think that they had wanted to depict the angel as they're described in you know in the Bible and what have you, uh, and also the you know the all the Jewish the Jewish texts where angels are these cosmic creatures and they're beyond description. They're they're really cosmic horror entities mm-hmm. when you think about it. You know, like a a Fucking dynamo with wings, and it's got three heads, and they're all covered in eyes. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, I would have preferred that route. Yeah, it would have been cool if they had gone that route, but obviously a budget would have restricted that. So Maybe. we got what we got, and I don't think it's terrible. No. I will say, I, I think that the angel's reaction to her change of heart I thought was very, uh, very well done. It's yes. very subtle, or it just kind of cracks a smile. And that's it. Um, yeah, like th- th- just the you know I I mentioned that the the movie for us to discuss tonight because it it the whole approach to a actual you know occult ritual. You know, I wanted to do similar things in Devil's Creek when Imogene and you know her her love interest, um, Tyler, when she's trying to put things in motion to counteract what's going to happen when she dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was this definite occult aspect that's, you know, I have running throughout the story that not a lot of people pick up on. I don't think, which is fine. Uh, but a dark song was definitely the, inspiration behind that
0: and all the circles in the uh-huh. basement like that that registers a lot more now and just that yeah. final sacrifice she makes and the approach we had with that
1: yeah, yeah there's a lot of a lot of math and geometry in the in a yes. rituals <laughs> that people don't realize
0: <laughs> yes as a language arts social studies person i i'm out <laughs> I yeah. won't be able to pull off the occult ritual. I'm sorry to
1: no, that's okay. whoever
0: dies before me. <laughs> um, okay, so if, if a dark song is kind of giving us our ritualistic aspect of this thing, then I think Salem's Lot has a lot to talk to us about uh, kind of back with the small town horror aspect of things. Um, we've got a lot of fun parallels between Salem's Lot, the book, and the movie. Um side note for anybody listening, I'm intentionally not going to try to clarify what we're talking about here, book or movie because unfortunately in my mind, the book and the movie have melded together so much so that I can't quite distinguish one from the <laughs> other besides the scene in the movie where the uh, the boy is scratching on the outside of the glass. That's definitely the movie. <laughs> um, but otherwise, uh they they all kind of work together a lot um but anyhow there's a lot of fun parallels here between Devil's Creek and Salem's Lot um we've got this otherworldly being pulling the strings around a town uh we have this Building that's isolated even from the isolated small town that seems to be the focal point of all of the evil with the Morrison house and then with Masters's church. Um, so, how much inspiration did you pull from Salem's Lot intentionally while you were writing Devil's Creek? How much of this is just a fun, crazy, hap- crazy, crazy random happenstance uh, because we're playing in the same sort of a setting here?
1: Uh. Um, Salem's lot was absolutely a huge inspiration, uh, in the early days of writing devil's Creek before I really started to get into the dynamics of the town. Um, I returned to Salem's lot, the movie and the book. Uh, and I, I, I read, reread the book I mean, it was probably my third or fourth time reading it by that point. Cause that's probably my favorite King novel. Um, and primarily I learned, I looked to that book because of how it's structured. Uh, you know, how did King work in all these small town aspects that I talked about at the beginning, you know, of our interview, how did he work all of this in? Because this was his only, only his second published novel at this point. Uh, not his second written. I think he had like four or five or six you know, but at that point. But anyway, um, you know, I really took a, a close read of it and to dissect it. Okay, how is he doing this? And there's a lot of stuff that in the movie that actually gets played up to a bigger degree uh, in terms of the peripheral characters that make the town come alive. Uh, and they only just get mentioned in like one scene or two in the book. So really interesting to see, you know, see them get like. If I had the opportunity, I would love to sit down with like Stephen King and Toby Hooper, rest in peace, and just pick their brains about, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you omit this but leave this in the film? Um. So the structure, you know, first and foremost. know king has this three-part structure of what essentially amounts to a a town slowly being devoured and overrun by vampires spoilers i guess at this point it couldn't be a spoiler (laughs) yeah Yeah, that's
0: that feels like spoiling the sixth sense like
1: yeah you don't know
0: by now something's wrong
1: (laughs) so i i Learned what I could learn from that and tried to adapt that with my approach to Devil's Creek. And that's where you get a lot of the inclusion of the peripheral characters. Here's what's going on in town right now. And here's, you know, here's what this character's doing. Here's what this character's doing. Are they necessarily, you know, driving the plot forward in terms of plot points? No. But they are developing the town as a character as well as themselves. And they're giving the reader more context for everything that's happening. Right. Uh, so, you know, my job was to use those to great effect and limit as many of them as I could. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, again, we come to this push and pull with edit, with an editor saying, you got to cut this and we got to get this page count and hit this word count and what have you. Uh, so that was my biggest takeaway from Salem's Lot there. Um, obviously, the, the artist, you know, in Salem's Lot, it's, he's a writer. Ben Mears comes back into town. You know, he lived there when he was younger. He comes back because he's been infatuated with this, this haunted house in town or outside of town. And, you know, there's a, there's a similarity there with Jack returning to, to Stafford. And, you know, the circumstances are different and, you know, he's not necessarily obsessed with a particular location. In fact, he's ad- rather been running from it his whole life. Uh, but, but, The the concept is there. You know, there are some parallels. Um, I can't say for certain that there were like any particular scenes or anything. Um, But, you know, that was that's how Salem's Lot really, you know, inspired a big chunk of Devil's Creek and was in how it's told.
0: Yeah. It's it's so hard to use those little non plot driving points to make the town feel so lived in um if it, it feels like giving us context uh, i think you said earlier that the the setting itself needs to be a character yeah um so it it needs those moments of details um you you can't have somebody feel a connection to a character that's totally flat that's totally like yeah, non-described it, with no wants or needs or anything else and you've got to get that into town through those kind of side characters
1: a town isn't really a town if there's nobody in it oh. you know it's just an area with buildings that's it like it's the people who live there that make up what a town really is a community <laughs> Um, so that was that was an argument I had to have many times <laughs> with Everybody who was involved on the production side of the book, and even in the selling of it, and you know, my agent and I butted heads a few times as well over it because all of that stuff in their eyes wasn't necessary. But you know, we also haven't had a proper full you know small town horror novel since I would say James Newman's *The Wicked* which was, you know, 10 plus years ago and, you know, props to Jim. Love you, dude. Um, that's a great book, but I wanted to take the, the tenets of a small town horror story that I grew up reading in like the eighties and the nineties and bring that to the modern day and see one to see if it would work. Yeah. Um, Cause you know, the, the, Invention of cellular phones can be a, a problem, right? <laughs> but not not when you're riding in an area that has really shitty cell phone service, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. This is good. Um,
0: so, I guess kind of the next question I would ask here. Let me pull up the whole list. I had this whole thing plotted out and this is literally the second time I've looked at my list of like practiced questions. For Sorry. I derailed everything. It. This is good. Um, do 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 Okay. So, um, next part to this and we kind of touched on this in, in the beginning of the episode when we were just talking generally about small town horror, but, um, something that King always does in his books and something that you did very well also um, is you have this big bad with Jacob Masters and you have this big bad with the vampires. But neither of you shied away from the the terrors of like regular everyday human existence. Um, I know you already talked about Rodney being built into the book. Um, but how do you strike the balance there with making sure we've got, the big bad, and then also kind of supplementary bads that are also interesting to read about, interesting to learn about. Because um, it feels like that dynamic would be very easy to get off. You lean too much into the big bad, and people stop caring about the the ancillary characters, or mm-hmm. you lean too much into the into the like uh, the the Rodneys, and you kind of lose focus on the big bad.
1: Well, I think what I tried to do, I mean, I'm also following in King's footsteps here. Um, You know, you don't see Barlow the vampire until the very end of Salem's lot in the book. Anyway, Uh, you know, you see him maybe like two thirds of the way through the movie because it's condensed, but um, so to that degree, like I was going to show Jacob, you see him prominently in the beginning, in the first part, and then he's more of a presence throughout the rest of the book up until like part four or five. And like, you'll see him from time to time, but he's not the main focus. Mm-hmm. He's mainly peppered in there just to let you know that, he, yeah, he's still there but I would rather let the characters that he's impacted be they, the characters that are his, you know, his children or the, you know, the townspeople um, that have had to live in the shadow of his presence and what he did. Uh, Cause you know, in, in the scope of the story, the, the cult suicides puts the town on the map for very, a whole lot of, you know, unsavory reasons um everything surrounding the cult uh the town wants to just move on and bury and not be involved with and ostracize it and cast it out that's why the surviving children the Stafford six are so uh they're treated so poorly and you know the the parents of the there's a news article in the book where you know, there have been protests. The parents don't want those kids going to Stafford school system to mingle with the other children because they're tainted, you know? Right. Uh, so, and I can't speak for King because, uh, you know, I don't know him personally, but when it came to the story, I wanted basically the yeah, like Jacob's shadow to be cast over everything, whether he's there or not. And then to show the effects of that through the characters, be they, you know, primary or, you know, secondary.
0: Yeah. I like that. Uh, even when Jacob's not there, he's sort of kind of there and everything's kind of feeding up to this bigger bigger thing i also like the parallels with the stafford six uh kind of showing showing the town their past indiscretions and being this constant reminder of just how evil they were yeah um so our gut reaction to that as a small town isn't oh let's live and learn from this it's uh just get them to go away (laughs) just make it so we don't have to look at them
1: this you know facing this truth is an inconvenient inconvenience to me just no away. go stand over there where I don't have to look at you.
0: Right. Uh, and that that plays back to maybe the first thing we were talking about with with the the racist past mm-hmm. and the, the, all of these like horrible histories. Um cool. Um so we are way over time. So <laughs> Sorry. I feel like there is so much more that we could dive into with Salem's lot. No, 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 no. This is I I love when we go over time because it means that we've been having good conversations, Um, but kind of bringing it back in uh, finding a couple of closing notes here. Is there anything that we missed with small town horror that you think deserves like five minutes of conversation?
1: I mean, not necessarily like aspects of, of small town horror that absolutely has to be there, but more of just a, you know, a side effect of it, I guess. Maybe side effect isn't the right phrase, but what I'm getting at is that, you know, small town horror, you really need those character, you know, like we established that you need characters Mm -hmm. to fill up the town, to give the town life. And by that degree, you know, to that extent, you have to also show facets of small town living and religion being one of them. Uh, you know, the, somebody on Goodreads once said that, uh, Devil's Creek, it read like the author just wanted to write about kinky sex and bash religion. And on the second fact, they're not wrong. <laughs> <clears throat> um, you know, it's, it's very much about one man's fanaticism that essentially physically infects other people and drives them to you know commit atrocities in the name of a god that is just using them and you know i i wanted to get at that that little nugget of human uh of humanity in the story
0: yeah that's Man, there are so many things that we just didn't get into tonight that I was totally planning on, like with the politics and with the religion involved here. So I guess if I'm making one note about the religious side of things here, um, that, that was something you played with very well in Devil's Creek was this idea that when your worldview in these small towns is so small and you've never really met or experienced anything outside of these small towns, the one person in that town telling you, this is what the bigger picture is, this is what you should be striving for, they attain this brainwashing capability over people where the people aren't looking to refute them, the people aren't looking to find out what's really going on here. They just want this one little nugget of uh, potential, this one little nugget of... Um, somebody telling them that they're more important than this one small town would offer them. And those religious leaders can take that and just totally go off to the races with it once they've got Mm -hmm. their people hooked. And we see it with Jacob Masters and we see it with Joel Osteen, like you said, or Austin, or however I say that. I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. I don't want to respect him enough to say his name right. (laughs) Fine. Joel. Um, But we, we see those types of people Praying, especially on small town rural civilizations like that this where you just haven't experienced enough to know better um and it's such a vulnerable position that some people can be in that i think that's something that we would be remiss if we didn't mention here yeah uh, just that whole angle of attacking these sorts of towns
1: and on us as a side note i just remembered that uh, on social media, many years ago, while I was still writing the book, I joked about sending a copy of it to Joel. <laughs> like you were a huge inspiration to me when I was writing this. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe, oh I'll, do that. Maybe I'll do that.
0: I need that. Uh, we'll we'll hope that Twitter holds on long enough to see his reaction. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll we'll look at his TikTok. I don't want to see that. But oh, whatever. I don't know. um well todd it has been amazing talking to you uh as kind of a point of closure where should our listeners go find you uh where where can they connect with you social media wise and do you have any other big projects coming up that we should be on the lookout for
1: uh yeah so uh my website todd is kind of like the you know the hub of everything. Uh, you can find info about all my books, all my art. If you want to hire me as a design designer, all that info is there. All my social media stuffs there too. Um, I am and hope to still be really active on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> at Todd underscore Keesling. Uh, but I am also on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Patreon. I have a Substack newsletter that you can find me there. And if Twitter does not last out the weekend, as we are recording on November seventeenth, <laughs> uh if Twitter isn't a thing by the time this airs, um you can probably find me on well, I'm I am on Mastodon. I don't remember my handle, you'll have to look me up. Yep. Yeah. Uh I'll probably be on TikTok because god damn it, I give up. <laughs> okay and uh yeah so um in terms of projects so devil's creek is my uh comes out january 10th and then uh my second short story collection cold black and infinite stories of the horrific and strange comes out uh in july 2023 also from cemetery dance
0: very nice all right well Todd, again, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Uh, it has been a joy getting to meet you.
1: Likewise, man. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, any t- literally anytime. Um, But this closes us out for the week. Uh, before you go, listeners, please don't forget to like, subscribe, or give some of that old-time religion to the streaming service of your choice. Uh, we will see you next time. Stay spooky.